Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. Well, guess what, ladies and gentlemen? What the frack? The number of earthquakes, 3.0 or stronger, in Oklahoma is going down, according to recent reports. According to the U.S. Geological Survey, before they shut down, regulations against oil and natural gas producers have caused the decrease in earthquakes. 196, larger than magnitude 3.0, were recorded last year as compared to 903 in 2015. After a record year for large quakes in that year, the Oklahoma Corporation Commission, who knew, directed some producers to slow down on wastewater injections at fracking operations, closed other wells altogether in Oklahoma. What the hell's going on here? It's like California banning sun tanning. Since then, notable differences in the number of magnitude 3.0 earthquakes have been reported. This, by the way, is according to uh, KTUL. Guess where? That's right, Tulsa. See, see how good call letters used to be? It's important to note these earthquakes are now thought to be man-made instead of caused by faults in the Earth's crust. According to the Oklahoma Geological Survey, again, who knew? There's broad agreement among seismologists that the disposal of water into or in communication with basement rock well that sounds that sounds like a channel on Sirius XM that presents a potential risk for triggering seismicity that is to say earthquakes the most recent decline in numbers scientists say, say are evidence that their theories are correct according to the USGS The uh, wastewater injection used to get get rid of excess water by forcing it back into the ground. Well, can't be anything wrong with that, can there? Yeah, the ground speaks its mind. Hello, welcome to the show. Get going while the going's good. Get moving while you're in the mood. Get rocking when you're riding tight. Take your time, we ain't got all night. We're gonna get it, quit it, get on with it. Yeah, go, hit it, quit it, get on with it now. Get on with it, a bit by bit. Hit, get, quit, split. I get jump on my phone and jaw. Baby girl, I'm your baby boy. I waste no time, it's lose, you lose. Tonight I'm gonna rock away all my blues. Get it, get it, get on with it. With it. Yeah, I don't wanna hit it, get it, quit it, on with it now. I get on with it, it a bit if I'm big. Get it, quit and spit. Get on 
From Santa Monica, California, the edge of, the, of America and the home of the homeless. Still, again, ever. I'm Harry Shearer welcoming you to this edition of the show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, News of the Olympic Movement. Produced by Jim Ebersall Jr. As you know, the 2020... Oh, that's just a year from now. year and a half. Olympics are scheduled for Tokyo. And the head of Japan's Olympic Committee this week was indicted in Paris for active corruption in connection with the awarding of next year's Olympics to Tokyo. Sunekazu Takeda. He's 71. Never too old to be indicted, apparently. He was indicted uh, about a month ago by investigating magistrates looking into a suspicious payment of nearly 2 million euros, that's almost $2 million, made before Tokyo was chosen, after it beat Madrid and Istanbul. Takeda denied he'd been indicted by French authorities, said no improper action such as bribery took place in connection with Tokyo's successful bid. He's a former Olympic show jumper who led his campaign, his country's campaign for the Games. He's also an influential member of the International Olympic Committee. Nothing wrong there. The French investigation launched ooh, three years ago relates to two payments made to Singapore-based Black Tidings, a firm linked to the son of the Senegalese former head of the International Association of Athletics Federations, Lamine Diak. That's uh, the International... A the IAAF is... Uh, Federation of all the uh, gymnastics federations around the world. And the younger Diak is himself a powerful marketing advisor, marketing advisor to the IAAF, which is, of course, an association of amateur athletes. So they need marketing advice. The payments were made at two stages before and after the IOC vote that decided the host city. Papa Masadiak, that's the son. I know, he's named Papa. He's the son is suspected of having received several million euros in bribes either for sponsorship contracts or to favor the Rio and Tokyo bids for the Olympics. He's been uh, on the Interpol most wanted list for three years. The Senegalese government refuses to extradite him to France. Last month, the IOC president formally requested that Senegal cooperate. Takeda, who's currently the vice chairman of the Olympics Organizing Committee in Tokyo, was questioned three years ago, two years ago, by Japanese magistrates. French judges have taken on the case, though, because they argue the funds involved might have been laundered in France. And besides... Ah, the French. French investigation was launched in the wake of allegations of wide-scale corruption involving the IAAF. It was initially accused of helping Russian athletes evade sanctions imposed for 
failing drug tests. Spokeswoman for the uh, Japanese minister in charge of the Olympics declined to comment about the case. But the Olympics will go on. Anyway, as well they should. Because, ladies and gentlemen, it's a movement. And we all need one. Speaking of which, some news to the godly, maybe to the rescue. The Vatican has launched an athletics team, gymnastics, track, track and field actually, with the aim of competing in international competitions, including the Olympics. Part of an agreement the Vatican signed with the Italian Olympic Committee. About 60 runners from Vatican City, Swiss guards, priests, nuns, pharmacists, are the first accredited members of Vatican Athletics. It's the latest iteration of the Holy See's long-standing promotion of sports as an instrument of dialogue, peace, and solidarity. And a good way to meet young... Oh, sorry. Because of the agreement with the Olympics, the team is now part of the Italian Track Association, seeking to join the IAAF, I guess, partly for the exercise, partly for the bribes. It's hoping to compete in international competitions. The dream we have often had is to see the Holy See flag among the delegations at the opening of the Olympic Games, said Monsignor Jose Sanchez de Toca e Alameda, the team president, head of the Vatican's sports department. He said that was neither a short-term nor medium-term goal. For now, the Vatican was looking to participate in competitions that had cultural or symbolic value. He added, quote, we might even podium, unquote. First recorded instance of podium being used as a verb. But uh, wouldn't it simplify everything for everybody? If the perm, you know, they talk nowadays about uh, you can't have the Olympics moving from city to city every four years. It's too expensive, blah, blah, blah. Why not just have the permanent home of the Olympics be at the Vatican? It just solves everybody's problem, doesn't it? Speaking of which, the global, Cat- oh, more news of the godly, the global Catholic community, Opus Dei paid almost a million dollars to settle a sexual misconduct suit against the Reverend C. John McCloskey, a priest who was well-known in the Washington, D.C. area for converting big-name conservatives, including Newt Gingrich. Uh, That misconduct suit was filed by a D.C. area Catholic woman who was among the many who received spiritual direction from McCloskey through the Catholic Information Center. She told the Washington Post McCloskey groped her several times while she was going to pastoral counseling to discuss marital troubles and serious depression. Groping is not a cure for depression. The guilt and shame over the interaction sent her into a tailspin combined with her existing depression made it impossible for work at her high-level job. She spoke to him about her misperceived guilt over the interaction in confession, and he absolved her, she said. I love Opus Day, but I was caught up in this cover-up, she said. The disclosure of the complaint and settlement were not made public by Opus Day until this week, but behind the scenes, the ministry of the well-known priest had been sharply curtailed. Many Washington-area Catholics have wondered for years what happened to McCloskey. He was the closest thing to a celebrity the Catholic Church had in the Washington region. One other woman told Opus Day she was made uncomfortable by how he was hugging her, 
according to an Opus Dei spokesperson. He said the organization is also investigating a third claim so far unsubstantiated they called potentially serious. The woman, he says, may have also suffered from misconduct by Father McCluskey. In a statement, the vicar, Monsignor Thomas Bolin, said McCloskey's actions at the D.C. Center were deeply painful for the woman, ouch, who made the initial complaint, and we are very sorry for all she suffered. The woman requested that Opus Dei go public in an effort to reach other potential victims. McCloskey was removed from his job at the center a year after the complaint, when it was found to be credible. After leaving Washington after the complaints, he was sent to England and then Chicago and California for assignments with Opus Dei. The woman in the settlement said she was told by church officials in Chicago when he was sent there that he would not be allowed to, quote, get faculties, i.e. permission to fully function as a priest, and would be put on a very tight leash. Well, he might like that. She became worried last year when she came into contact with someone else who knew about McCloskey and heard he may have been working as a priest in California. Opus Dei, in their statement this week, said after the settlement, McCloskey was told to only give spiritual direction direction to women in the confessional, meaning, you know, separated by a wall from them. That is the norm in Opus Dei for priests working with those they're counseling. But McCloskey had an unusually public free role at the Information Center. He was identified as working in spiritual direction and pastoral ministry and as a spiritual consultant in... uh, 2014 press about him. So apparently McCloskey has not yet given up his Opus Day job. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. News of the Godly, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. <laughs> One of the biggest events to occur this week, aside from the U.S. government shutdown and uh, the tumult in Britain over whether the Parliament will approve the Prime Minister's plan for getting out of Europe, is the Consumer Electronics Show. It's the talk of the tech industry, or the tech of the talk industry, and it occurs in Las Vegas every year. And every year, let's just put it this way, the year after Ed Snowden revealed how much listening the NSA was doing to our conversations and our lives. That was the year the Consumer Electronics Show first came out with smart devices. So we could be, you know, listened in on by others as well. And that trend continues apace at this year's Consumer Electronics Show this this week. The uh, host of startup companies demonstrated to global automakers how the sensor technology that watches and analyzes drivers, passengers, and objects in cars will mean enhanced safety in the short term and revenue opportunities in the future, whether by generating alerts about drowsiness, unfastened seat belts, or wallets left in the back seat. The emerging technology aims not only to cut back on distracted driving and other undesirable behavior, but eventually help automakers and ride-hailing companies make money from data generated inside the vehicle. Very little data generated outside the vehicle. 
these days. Very few people riding on the roof. In-car sensor technology is deemed critical to the full deployment of self-driving cars, which analysts say is still likely years away. You heard it here, not first, but earlier on from uh, the mouth of artificial intelligence expert Gary Marcus. Right now, self-driving cars are still mainly at the testing stage, except in Arizona where citizens are throwing things at them. Well, that is the testing stage. The more sophisticated in-car monitoring also could respond to concerns that technology that automates some but not all driving tasks could lead motorists to stop paying attention and not be ready to retake control should the situation demand it. The motoring cameras and artificial intelligence software behind self-driving cars will likely be used to help create a more customized ride for passengers right now. Such cameras are mainly used to enhance safety. Interior-facing cameras inside the car are still a novelty, currently only found in the 2018 Cadillac CT6. Subaru and uh, an electric vehicle startup called Byton are introducing cars this year whose cameras measure driver inattention. Data from the cameras is analyzed with image recognition software to determine whether a driver is looking at his cell phone or the dashboard, turned away, or getting sleepy. Companies such as Israel's Guardian Optical and EyeSight Technologies, as well as Sweden's Smart Eye, Australia's Seeing Machines Limited, and Silicon Valley's Iris Technologies, are crowding the space. Many have already signed undisclosed deals for 2020 and beyond. There's no doubt this is a hot area, said the founder and CEO of the Silicon Valley firm. His company combines five 2D cameras with AI technology for in-vehicle scene understanding, including car occupants' height, weight, gender, and posture. He believes once automakers see the benefits of a camera tracking the driver, they will opt for more. Drivers? He didn't say. Automakers are paying attention for multiple reasons. As one of the executives said, what automakers want is what either sells cars or what regulators tell them to do. The European Car Safety Rating Program, Euro NCAP, has proposed that cars with driver monitoring for 2020 should earn higher ratings. Automakers are more excited by the revenue possibilities when vehicle-generated data creates a more customized experience for riders, generating higher premiums and lucrative tie-ins with third parties, such as retailers. Hey, look, you could come. In, you could make a right turn and come in here. The reason the camera is going to sweep across the cabin is not because of distraction, but because of all the side benefits, says the automotive research director of Gartner a research firm. I promise you, he says, that companies that are trying to monetize data from the connected car are investigating ways to use eye-tracking technology. Potential uses go way beyond mere tracking of a gaze. The future of the technology rests in deciphering what a vehicle occupant wants, then fusing that with other technologies in order to create a more personalized ride. (laughs) The more you know about the user, the more you're able to fulfill his or her needs says the Senior Director of Strategy for Nuance Automotive. 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 The Nuance's connected car platform mixes eye-tracking technology, voice recognition, and even emotion analysis from a company called Affective. 
They could play a particular kind of music when an occupant enters the car. If a passenger looks toward the dashboard, a control could light up to help anticipate a need. Car makers could gather anonymized data, oh sure, and sell it. A billboard advertiser might be eager to know how many commuters look at his sign. Tracking the gaze of a passenger toward a store or restaurant could be fused with mapping and other software resulting in a discount offered to that person. Consumers will be able to opt out, they say. This is all from Reuters. And the innovation just doesn't stop. The world just keeps getting smarter. Also, at the Consumer Electronics Show, Kohler's Numi 2.0 Intelligent Toilet. Built-in surround sound speakers, ambient mood lighting, Amazon Alexa voice controls. Alexa, flush me my toilet, won't you? Flush me my toilet, won't you? This is from The Verge. In a press release, Kohler, the plumbing company, a 146-year-old plumbing company, so they know from promises that customers will enjoy a, quote, fully immersive experience, unquote. No, you don't have to dive it, thanks to the many lighting and audio enhancements of the new Me 2.0 intelligent toilet. That's what they're calling it. They'll be able to set the mood, will the customers, using voice commands to cue up music and customize the lighting. How long are they staying? All while Kohler's pure warmth toilet seat add-on does what it does. The company companions, oh yes, I used companion as a verb. Uh, the, com- the, the company accompanies its smart toilet with a smart shower, smart mirror, and smart tub. Let's get in the smart tub. It is a smart world. Now, some stuff that was said this week by uh, <laughs> President Trump. Uh, this was a good week for his quotes. Um, one was that he denied ever having said that Mexico was going to write a check to pay for the wall along the U.S.-Mexican border. Uh, the news channels dredged up a number of clips that certainly put that statement into uh, a certain amount of um, dispute, darkness, and uh, uh, more to the point, a um, a totally unsolicited statement about... Uh, now, you remember... In uh, mid-November, President Trump, <laughs> President Trump, met with uh, Chuck and Nancy, the Democratic congressional leaders to be, and and now are uh, Chuck, the Democratic minority leader in the Senate, Nancy Pelosi, now the Speaker of the House, and had said in in, in a meeting that was on camera by his own choice that he would be glad to take what he called the mantle of closing down the government if uh, they didn't agree to funding for the wall. Um, This week, the president laid the blame solely at the feet of uh, Pelosi and Schumer 
no mantle involved. But my favorite choice for the uh, quote of the week was this from (laughs) the president responding to a question as he came onto the White House lawn before he was heading down to um, the border to witness the crisis. He was asked, did the, per the classic Harry Truman line, did uh, he think that the buck stopped with him in relation to the government shutdown? The buck stops with everybody.
And now, news of our friend the atom. Clean, safe, too cheap to meet. Safe, cheap, too cheap to meet. Cheap, safe, too safe to meet. Safe, safe, too safe to meet. Well, if you're the government of Great Britain, where would you dump the radioactive hulks of 22 nuclear submarines that you've kind of had enough of off the coast of Scotland. At least that's according to documents released by the British National Archives. Right at the end of the year, a survey for the Ministry of Defense in 1989 identified six sites for seabed storage of defunct naval submarines near the islands of Skye, Mull, and Barra for up to 60 years, probably longer. Detailed and highly confidential MOD studies concluded the plan was feasible and would obviate the international problems which we would face were we to dispose of these vessels in international waters. That's according to a Scottish news site called The Ferret. It comes out every week in your pants. According to one Ministry of Defense official, the aim was to remove submarines from public view. Another hope that, quote, everyone will forget about these submarines and they will be allowed to quietly rot away indefinitely. The revolution, uh, revelations have sparked anger and outrage from politicians and campaigners who accused the Ministry of Defense of seeing Scotland as a nuclear dustbin. The Ministry of Defense stressed that current submarine disposal plans met the strictest standards of safety and security. The 1989 sea dumping plan ended up being quietly dropped, dumped like the submarines that weren't. But the Ministry of Defense has still not solved the problem of what to do with the accumulating number of nuclear subs that have now been taken out of service. It's that, um, what do you do with the, what do you do with the thing after it's done? Problem. A nuclear physicist who has drawn attention for tweeting about fallout from the Fook disaster has admitted that he and a colleague underestimated radiation doses in an article for an international scientific journal. Ryugo Hayano at the University of Tokyo said the error, which he recognized just this past week, was unintentional. The article was carried in the Journal of Radiological Protection's online edition. In July two years ago, it listed average radiation doses that were one-third of the actual levels for people in Date, a city northwest of the Fuk number one nuclear plant. His admission came after an atomic nuclear expert contacted the journal last year to point out unnatural data carried in the report. and called for a uh, a correction. The radiation doses in the article were based on figures kept by Date residents after the accident in March 2011. A professor emeritus with the High Energy Accelerator Research Organization raised doubts about the data presented in some sections of the report. When Hayano and his colleagues re-examined the figures, they found that they mistook a monthly dose recorded on a dosimeter as the figure for three months of exposure. Hayano said the conclusion of the report still stands. Screw the data. Dig 
the conclusion. Hitachi, they're going to put a U.K. nuclear power project on hold. Negotiations with the British government over funding hit an impasse, all but closing the book on Tokyo's vision for nuclear infrastructure exports, according to the Nikkei Asian Review. The Japanese Industrial Conglomerates Board will officially decide next week to suspend all work on the plant, including design and preparations for construction. Hitachi will freeze the roughly $2.77 billion in assets held by its British nuclear business and write down their value, likely booking a loss for the fiscal year ending in March. The move would bring to a halt Japan's last active overseas nuclear project after the news last month that a Japanese-led consortium I'm over here, including Mitsubishi, was scrapping a project in Turkey with the aversion to nuclear power that took hold after the Fuchs thing, showing a little sign of abating. Prospects look grim for a sector the Japanese government had positioned as a pillar of its infrastructure export drive. Hitachi had taken on the planned construction of two reactors on the Welsh island of Anglesey after acquiring UK-based Horizon nuclear power in 2012. But Hitachi had trouble finding corporate investors in Japan. The uh, project was discussed with British Prime Minister Theresa May last spring. London agreed to arrange more than 2 trillion yen. That's a lot of yen in financing for the project, about two-thirds of the total cost. Hitachi asked London late last year for additional financing, but negotiations have made no headway. Hitachi did set conditions on continuing its participation in the project in order to reduce its exposure to risk. It seeks to unload enough of its stake to take the company, that is to say wholly owned Horizon, off its books, and it wants a guaranteed electricity price to ensure a steady stream of income once the plant goes online. Well, who wouldn't want that? Let's see, who else did... British government will give a steady stream of income to. There is virtually no scenario in which 3.6 million pounds of radioactive waste could pose a public safety or economic threat to people who live miles away from the shuttered San Onofre nuclear power plant. That's the word from utility officials and federal regulators this week. The bottom line is that no credible accident mechanism exists for radioactive material to leave the San Onofre site. Given how much the spent fuel has cooled off, since the reactors were shut down for the last time. That's the word from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. This means there is no basis for examining potential economic effects of an accident beyond the site boundary, never mind out 10 to 25 miles. That uh, regulator official and officials from the plant's owner were responding to a pair of reports this week by the Samuel Lawrence Foundation. One said a worst-case accident could cripple transportation, close ports, and cause a loss to the regional economy of more than $13 trillion, and that's dollars, not yen. The other questioned the process as Edison is using to transfer nuclear waste into steel-lined canisters along the shoreline next to San Onofre. That's right. It's right next to the Pacific Ocean. Critics of the study said its authors made key mistakes in their assumptions about San Onofre, which closed amid a radiation leak. Well, wouldn't you figure that? Edison is in the process of transferring millions of pounds of spent nuclear fuel from cooling ponds to so-called dry storage at the site. They transfer 
to uh, the waste into steel-lined concrete casks was halted temporarily after a near-miss accident that resulted in a notice of violation issued by the regulators. Got to make sure you don't drop those casks going forward. And that's, that's good advice for everyone. Dateline Richland, Washington, a Department of Energy proposal that could change what is done with some high-level radioactive waste at Hanford, the Hanford Nuclear Reservation, has Oregon urging its residents to take a stand. Waste that is no longer considered high-level would be disposed in shallow burial instead of way deep. That's according to Oregon. That's a state's position is at odds with groups in Washington, which is where Hanford is located. They say the Department of Energy proposal could save billions of dollars in environmental cleanup money across the nation, making more dough available for some of the most pressing environmental cleanup at Hanford. Now, radioactive waste at Hanford and other DOA nuclear cleanup sites, that's right, there's more than one uh, across the nation, is defined as high-level waste based on its origin, not national origin, uh, waste associated with chemically processing irradiated uranium fuel to remove plutonium is classified as high-level waste. They're not proud of that. It's required to be disposed of in a deep geological repository. Unfortunately, no such repository yet exists. So, lacking the repository necessary for the high-level waste, the Department of Energy wants to reinterpret the definition to look at the waste's characteristics and risks. Other countries do that, rather than its origin. Oregon had that idea nearly three decades ago. But the state is now concerned that the current proposal from the Department of Energy would give that department unilateral discretion to define nuclear waste, to determine how to classify and dispose of it. For decades, it has been managed as high-level waste. Zap! You're low-level. Goodbye. Independent regulatory oversight by states and the NRC would be gone, as well as criteria for defining waste that's been approved by Congress. That's according to Oregon's comments. Well, let's just redefine all high-level nuclear waste as low-level, and we've solved the nuclear waste storage problem once and for... Oh, for all. Pressure is mounted to keep two nuclear power reactors in North Ayrshire. This would be in Scotland. Closed. The company that runs them EDF Energy says it has found more cracks in the reactors or acts in the react- in the recractors and was again postponing plans to restart. The French company now estimates there are 370 major cracks in the graphite core of reactor 3, 200 cracks in the core of reactor 4. 3 has been closed down since uh, well both have been closed down since uh, part of last year. The uh, Scottish News site The Ferret revealed in November that 350 cracks had been discovered in Reactor 3 in breach of an operating safety limit. EDF postponed restarting both reactors to uh, this month and next. But now there's been a further delay. The company is now hoping to restart Reactor 4 at the end of March and Reactor 3 at the end of April. A a group of nuclear-free local authorities authorities that oppose nuclear 
Plants held a safety briefing for Scottish Parliament members. Experts called for the reactors to stay closed rather than risking a new uh, a nuclear accident and for new jobs to be created in the area. Nuclear policy consultant Dr. Ian Fairley argued that the increasing number of cracks in the aging reactors was not a good thing. Uh, yeah, spelled their end. Quote, there's only one thing you can do, and that is close them as they cannot be repaired, he said. Although the risks of a major adverse event there are relatively small, he continued, one has to take into account what the worst-case scenario would be, and that is pretty serious indeed. The radioactive contamination and evacuation of both Edinburgh and Glasgow. Well, those would be the two major cities in Scotland. He may be overstating the case. He urged the Scottish government to take a more proactive stance. It needs to take a good look at the risks here and to decide whether it is really worthwhile running them, he said. After all, he added, we really don't need their electricity, though we need to ensure that jobs are safeguarded, unquote. They started generating electricity, did the two plants in 1976, and can provide up to 20% of Scotland's electricity. They were originally due to close 13 years ago. But now the uh, power company, EDF, wants to keep them going until at least 2023. But the prolonged closures caused by the discovery of more cracks than expected have cast doubt over the reactor's future. The uh, cracks, you see, ladies and gentlemen, are caused by intense radiation bombardment over decades. Well, that's going to stop if you fairly has warned the blocks in which the cracks appear, core graphite blocks, could split and in some circumstances cause meltdown and a major release of radioactivity. That claim has been denied by the company, <laughs> yeah, you think, which indicated, insisted, as a matter of fact, that the reactors were safe to operate. The company is requesting permission from the UK safety watchdog of nuclear reactors to start them up again. The regulator says it will only authorize further operation of the reactors if they are, quote, demonstrably safe. Well, that should be one hell of a demonstration, don't you think? EDF disclosed uh, recently it had inspected a quarter of the core of reactor three and found 100 cracks. They used modeling to project the number of cracks across the whole reactor. They estimated the current number is 370. That's over the operational limit of 350 contained in the existing safety regulation. Quote, although it's important to remember that we always set conservative operational limits, which are well below what would be considered safe. That's according to the company. And that, ladies and gentlemen, you can take to the bank. The nuclear bank. No, there isn't one. Clean, cheap, too safe to meter. Our friend, the atom.
Kevin Hart seems eager to make up for his previous failures to adequately apologize for past homophobic tweets, especially being after being called out by news outlets for not having apologized, as he repeatedly claimed. On Monday, he offered a new apology to the LGBTQ community, though in a strange third person. Quote, once again, Kevin Hart apologizes for his remarks that hurt members of the LGBTQ community. I apologize. Hart said on his Sirius XM show. His hosting gig came under fire, as you know, in early December after some um, early, earlier in his life homophobic tweets resurfaced. He initially refused to comment or apologize, saying he'd already done so in the past. He only apologized after he stepped down from the hosting job, saying he didn't want to be a distraction. Timber, Minnesota Timberwolves guard Derek Rose, this is the NBA, for those of you who don't know who the Timberwolves are, Derek Rose apologized this week saying he wished anyone who doubted his drive and determination to play in the wake of the firing of the team's coach, Tom Thibodeau, would, quote, kill yourself, unquote. Rose made the remarks after practice when he was discussing Thibodeau's ouster. Thibodeau coached Rose in Chicago and helped him resurrect his career in Minnesota. Tibbs was just the coach that believed in me, said Rose. He jumpstarted my career again, and for that I'll always be thankful. But for everybody to think that it's going to stop, kill yourself. It's not. I messed up, said Rose, by using the slang term kill yourself in response to a question about whether I can continue continue to perform without Coach Tibbs. I did not mean it literally and regret using it, so I apologize. It's slang. ESPN has apologized for taking the Andrew Luck Civil War theme too far during its Saturday broadcast of the Indianapolis Colts-Houston, Texas wildcard playoff game. This is NFL football, for those of you like me who don't know. A graphic depicting the Colts quarterback as a Civil War officer taking a cue from a popular Twitter parody account was shown during the game with the Confederate anthem Dixie playing in the background. ESPN spokesman Josh Krulowitz issued an apology through Sporting News. It was a mistake to use this song. We regret having done so. 
and we apologize. The Consumer Electronics Show, about which we've heard so much during this broadcast, stripped a sex toy, pardon the expression, of its innovation award, and the maker of the robotic stimulator is not taking the snub lying down. The hardware firm behind the sex toy, Laura DiCarlo, and its founder, Laura Haddock, issued a strong rebuke of CES and its leadership this week regarding the decision to take back the awarding of the honor, pointing to it as evidence of the ongoing issue of gender bias in tech. Said uh, the CES, The product does not fit into any of our existing product categories and should not have been accepted for the Innovation Awards program. The Consumer Technology Association has communicated this position to Laura DiCarlo. We have apologized to the company for our mistake. And they can shove it. No, they didn't say that. A TV meteorologist at an NBC affiliate in Rochester, New York, was fired after being accused of using an on-air racial slur in reference to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. The chief meteorologist of the station, WHEC, Jeremy Kappel, says he simply jumbled his words during a broadcast in which he apparently called a park named for the slain civil rights leader, quote, Martin Luther Coon King Jr. Park. These words have no place on NBC's air, and the fact that we broadcast them disheartens and disgusts me, said the general manager of the station. The meteorologist said he was just talking too fast. He um, had no intention to say those exact words. If you did feel that way and it hurt you in any way, he said, I sincerely apologize. Green Book director Peter Farrelly, whose film is enjoying momentum this award season, has apologized after news articles referencing past instances of sexual misconduct, veiled at the time as attempts at humor, resurfaced this week. True, I was an idiot, Farrelly said. I did this decades ago and I thought I was being funny and the truth is I'm embarrassed and it makes me cringe now. I'm deeply sorry. The cut brought attention to two articles from 1998, way back, that referenced instances in which Farrelly showed unsuspecting people his penis. Chance the Rapper has issued an apology for working with R. Kelly after a clip of an interview with him appeared in the new documentary series Surviving R. Kelly. He said, The quote used in the episode was taken out of context, but the truth is any of us who ever ignored the R. Kelly stories or even believed he was being set up, attacked by the system, were doing so at the detriment of black women and girls. Newly sworn in Representative Rashida Tlaib, Democrat of Michigan, apologized this week for the distraction her expletive comment about impeaching President Trump caused, but said she will never apologize for being me and for being passionate and upset. The apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen. What would it be except a copyrighted feature of this broadcast? gentlemen that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show the program returns next week at the same time right here on the radio and whatever you want it on the audio device of your choice and it would be just like 
the buck stopping with President Trump. <laughs> President Trump, if you agree to join with me then, would you already? Thank you very much. Uh-huh. A tip of the show chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, and Hawaii decks. Thanks, as always, to Pam Halstead and to Thomas Walsh at WWNO New Orleans for help with today's broadcast. The email address for this program, the playlist of the music heard here on, your chance to get Cards I Talk t-shirts all at harryshearer.com. And me, I'm on Twitter, at the Harry Shearer. show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Changes Easy Radio Network. So long from the home of the homeless.